Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. It's good to see each and every one of you. I'm so thankful you're here. I hope you've been enjoying this series with us. We're in part six of this series called From From Brokenness to Blessing. If you've missed some of these, you can go online and check them out. Uh, But I hope this blesses you today that the Word of God is always both encouraging and challenging. I I know this will be challenging, but I I promise you it will also lift up your spirits. I, I hope that testimony was encouraging to you. It's It's good to see another believer's struggle and understand how they've gotten from point A to point B and how point B isn't the end, (laughs) how there's so much more that Christ is still working on. And I'm thankful for her testimony today uh, because this idea today is this idea of what it would look like to be pure in heart. And that's, that's the next. We've been going through this series where we take the Beatitudes of Jesus, look at those blessings and see how we might live into them. And so today's Blessing from Christ in Matthew 5 on the Sermon Sermon on the Mount conversation. He says, in verse 8, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is one of the most amazing blessings yet. They will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, this word blessed is supremely happy. This state of like complete joy and contentment. What an awesome word to be blessed. And as we look back, we see that Really, Jesus has been building on every one of these. That it really started with blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the idea of having a certain humbleness before God to know I'm not good enough. That's kind of the entry point with our being blessed in Christ Jesus is to know I need a Savior. That's blessed Blessed are the poor in spirit. Then blessed are those who mourn, those who are meek, those who begin to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then last week, we talked about this idea of being merciful people. When we get to where we're working at each one of these. Now, for a reason, this one might feel like the most challenging one yet. Blessed are the pure in heart. Now, this step is this idea of desiring a new heart that's been totally purified by God, recognizing that all of the circumstances, all of the conditions we find ourselves in, that the very place where God wants to work on that is in our heart. There's, there's all the exterior stuff, but that stuff is all just the effect of the actual cause, which is a heart problem. And so this idea of having a pure heart, boy, that sounds, that sounds like a big challenge. This word pure here is, is, is no average word. It's the Greek word katharos, or it's where we get the English word catharsis, which is a medical term to describe something you do to provide relief or the process of releasing, of finding, if you will, peace in a thing. That's cathartic. Here this word has to do with being pure, like being purified by fire. Being cleansed in such a way that you've been pruned, that only the fruit is now being bared out, that you've picked all the the suckers off the plant, you've pruned it. That's the idea of pure. In fact, it it has to do with a blamelessness free from corruption. Now that's a heavy definition. We have to admit, what we really want is we want to see God, don't we? Like that's the blessing I want so bad. I want to know Him. I want to experience Him. I want other people to, when they see me, to see God in me. I want that experience. And yet I know a pure heart. Are you, are you serious about that one, God? Because I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to receive that blessing on this side. 
of grace. When we hear this definition, you might feel a sense of discouragement, as you might have as we approach this topic week in and week out. But the answer remains the same. This idea of pureness doesn't come by our own strength. We're terribly far from pureness of heart. That's a fact. That's just true, not just of you, but of me. Of all of you, look left and right, anywhere in this room, look anywhere you go. Pureness of heart is something we cannot attain. And if we took an inventory of our heart, we would recognize and know that there are unclean desires that well up in us. Things we know, I shouldn't want that. I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't think that way. I should have more compassion. I shouldn't get angry at my kids about that. That shouldn't do that in me, and yet it does. This darkness, this evil wells up in me at times. And we know purity of heart, how far I am. To know this blessing feels somewhat impossible because of these circumstances that we're often firing ourselves in. And Scripture completely agrees with you on this. Here's the good, good and bad news, if you will. The bad news first, <laughs> Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it, the prophet says. Who could possibly understand it? And more than that, who could possibly make it pure? Here's the good news. Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And that's where we're going to spend all of our time together today. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1. We were in 1 Peter last week. It's good to, we're keeping it all connected these last two weeks. But here the Apostle Peter is encouraging uh, the persecuted believers. It's interesting if you read all of chapter 1, you know that who, who Peter is writing to. He tells us that in verse 1 and 2. That there are scattered Christians all over the known world who are being likely persecuted. They've been pushed out of their homeland. To which he says, to the exiles, those scattered Christians. Here's what I have to say. <laughs> Through the mercy and power of God, you can have a pure heart. You can have a pure heart in the time of your exile. And we can become pure in heart too, knowing that we also are exiles. <laughs> now, I'm sure you may have a home. You might have somewhere you call home. But in the sense of, of the scheme of things, we are all exiles in this place. This is not our home. Our destiny, our destination is above. And while we're here, we spend that time well. And how do we spend it? Becoming pure in heart by God's power. So I think we're going to see the text give us three very clear ways to become pure in heart by the power of God. Let's read the scripture together. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 17. It says this, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, hear this church, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable 
through the living and abiding Word of God. God bless the reading of His Word. Amen. How do we become pure in heart by the power of God? Well, here's the first and most, honestly, the most important way. That is, call upon the Lord as His child. Call upon the Lord as His child. Now, I don't typically preach in such a way that these, you know, every one of these ways or steps or whatever is, is very much about your human effort. And there's a reason for that. And again, today, it's not about your human effort. I want you to look back for just a second. If you've got your Bibles open, you can see it for yourself. But if you go back to verses 3 through 5, Peter has already given us the, the diagnosis, if you will. The verses we're wrestling with today are the prescription. We're seeing, hey, you guys, you should call on Jesus. Hey, you should conduct yourselves in a certain way. Hey, love one another. Now, that all feels heavy and feels unattainable, except he's already said something important, and I want to touch on that. In verses 3 through 5, Peter says, According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. And then he goes on to say, who by God's very power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So here's what he's saying. Believer, you've already been made brand new. Christian this morning, you are already new in Christ Jesus. You already have the mercy given, the grace given, and the power of God upon you. Because of that, call upon the Lord. That's why in verse 17, there's a big careful word it's only two letters he says if look at that in verse 17 if you call upon the lord as father if you call on him as father now there's two things really important going on there who are you are you the type who calls on god and are you his kid notice he doesn't say if you call upon the lord period. He says, if you call on him as father, that means I recognize not only that I have the position to call on God, I also have a unique position that I am his son, that I am his daughter. I'm not going into some obscure throne room where I don't know the king, where I'm terrified. I'm coming in as a kid. And I've noticed something about my kids, church. They have zero problem asking me for stuff. Zero. In fact, they think I could give them the moon and the stars. They might as well. They, they think I'm a miracle worker at times. And that's how kids are. A loved child thinks that way. They come before me at, at all times, at all hours. They have no problem waking me up at 3 a.m. and saying, my tummy hurts. I could use some milk. No problem. And God is exactly the same, but pure and unconditional loving. He doesn't even grunt back. Whereas you wake me up at 3 a.m., I'm like, oh, I never hear that from God. He's my father, my perfect father. Do you understand the position you begin? You want to know how to have a pureness of heart? Call on him as father, as his child. This word call is to make an appeal. Peter is saying there's only one number to dial when you're seeking to be holy. Just before this, in verse 16, he reminds us of a... A Levitical phrase, a phrase that appears in Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It appears throughout the scriptures where God says, Be holy, for I am holy. Which is another amazing task, a baffling thing to ask. Imitate me in my holiness. And then Peter immediately says, How do you do it? Call on him as a kid. God, I know full well, and I know also that you know full well, how far from pureness I am. 
You know my every thought. You know my every action. Look at what a mess I've made. Look at the way I think, God. But I'm coming before you now in humility and meekness and poorness and spirit. God, I want a pure heart. There's some things I'm asking for, and this is legit. There's some things I'm asking for. I want to start treating people not because I know I should treat them right, but because my heart is welling up goodness. That the love of Christ is actually in me. Not that I probably should treat my church people nicely because I'm their pastor. I'm a Christian, and, and, and maybe this is how you think. I'm in the workplace. I know people know that I'm a Christian, so I've got to be nice. That's okay, but that's not pure heart. Pure heart is the love and mercy and grace of Christ are so poured into me that they can't stop being poured out of me. That the heart has so been impacted by his love that it's just gushing out. That's what I want. That kind of pureness of heart. That kind of thing that calls upon God as Father and says, I know I'm lacking here. I have got a, such a deficit in this area, God, but you do not. And you have more than enough for me. And I'm calling you, Dad, help me, Father. Jesus, give me a pure heart. And then he goes on to say something. This is for you, I know, but it felt like it was for me. It really felt like it was for me as I studied it again this week. Verse 17, it says that this father, this one we can call on as father, he judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now that might not jump off the page to you, but it's good for me to hear that God doesn't have teacher's pets. It's really good for me to hear that. It's good for me to know that this little dude up here preaching at this little church up here in this podunk town of Rocky Mount that some people call Murder Mount. I mean, it's good for me to know that God judges impartially. Isn't it good for you to know you working in some random factory somewhere, you, uh, your whole job is to make sure that these two kids, these three kids, these four kids don't kill themselves all day, and that's your stay-at-home parent. You're, Isn't it good for you to know that in this obscure job where you think you're not doing anything for Christ, that he doesn't judge in part, he doesn't judge with partiality. He doesn't have teacher's pets. He doesn't love Peter and Paul more than me. He loves me all the same. And he does what? He judges according to my deeds. That means what have I done with the time I have? What have I done with the name of Jesus in my day, in my spot, in my position? Have I done well with him there? He has... No amazing, like, beyond expectation that I'm only going to love you if you achieve this. No, I just want to know, are you going to do the best you can with what you've been given? He judges simply according to our deeds. Boy, that's encouraging to me today. Even on this pureness of heart thing that God just wants my best. He just wants to know, as we sang earlier, are you all in, my son, my daughter? Is your yes on the table? If I ask you to do something, are you game? I love this God who judges impartially. I'm thankful that it doesn't take a certain skill set or platform for him to love me. He loves me. Ask God to purify your heart. Call upon him to purify you. There is psalm after psalm I could go to for this. This isn't obscure. The psalmist writes in in Psalm 51, this is King David, he says in Psalm 51, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Do you hear these words? It is good. It is pure. It is right to ask God. I know my heart is a mess. Create in me a clean heart. Do something new in me. 
Pureness of heart comes not in our strength. Look at what the the psalmist writes in Psalm chapter 1, the very beginning of the Psalms. Verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. How do you receive a pure heart? Time well spent with the Savior. You want to know how to get any, any sort of thing in this life? Oh, I want to be stronger. I probably should be around things and around people that make me strong. I want to be healthy. I better get around and do healthy things. I want to be pure. I better find the one who's pure. And there's only one. There's only one. You want pureness? There it is. Time well spent with the Savior. Draw near to him. Receive a pure heart. James writes in James chapter 4, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. <laughs> that feels heavy, but he's calling it like he sees it. He's calling it like it is. That's who we are. Now, I've noticed something, and I just want to go ahead and jump this today because I've noticed a tension point, whether in my own discipleship or if I'm discipling others, something, a, a tension point I've noticed in the spiritual advice that we often receive. This word, quiet time. Devotion, daily devotions, might seem to you to be like a silver bullet. Like this is the thing that solves all problems in the Christian's life. And for you, that sounds insane. It sounds ridiculous to you. But I want to encourage you this morning to approach this from another direction. A a kind of a way of thinking that I've been challenged by more and more over time is, and I used to say this to people, hey, just find time with God in the day. If you're you're more of a night person, you know, you're best in the evening, spend time with him in the evening. Uh, I would like to rescind that to whoever I've said that to. I take that back. Because here's something I think is just true. When you wake up tomorrow, you do not wake up full. You don't. I don't care how good your quiet time was at midnight the night before. You could literally wake up one hour later. You do not wake up full. You wake up empty. You wake up empty. And guess what the world is? A buffet. It's a buffet. And you're starving. So it may seem like a silver bullet to you, but I want you to understand something. The, 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 the day you're going to face tomorrow or the next day, every single day that you face is a complete buffet of temptation, some good, some bad, good curses, blessings. It's a buffet. Some people are going to be good to you. Some are going to be awful to you. This is going to continue, my friends. This might be bad news. It's just real news. And God may or may not remove those temptations. That buffet, he might leave it right as it is. So that what? So that you might trust him more. So if I wake up tomorrow empty, I have a choice. I'm just going to go ahead and roll into this day. I'm going to go ahead and get my feet on the ground. I'm going to go ahead and put on whatever crazy music in the shower I need. I'm going to get going. Don't talk to me before I've had my morning coffee, though. And we say crazy stuff like that. And maybe you really believe that, but it's not so. Maybe you shouldn't even open your mouth to anyone else until you've opened it to the Savior. Not, not even one word. You don't wake up full. This is why Jesus himself had a habit of mourning devotion with the Father. If he needed it, it's insane that we think we don't. And it's not that the Savior had need. It's that he's trying to model something that, that we should be about. That we don't wake up ready to face the day, to walk with Christ. It's not a silver bullet. It is life itself. And here's something I've observed again and again and again. 
Time well spent with the Savior results in me treating people better. It results in me making more pure heart decisions. It's just true. And my thoughts become captivated by him. This is why in another place it says take every thought captive. The idea of that is that as as these come to mind, I'm going to hand them off to him. I'm going to grab them and say, that's crazy. Here, here you go. Like, I don't don't need that one today. And such that my anger and my frustration and the temptations, I'm just gathering them up. God, we started the conversation this morning, and you know what kind of day I'm facing. I need you to walk this one out with me. And see how your day goes so much different. See how that pureness of heart that you've been longing for, it comes from the pure one. From the Savior. Start every day. Not right away with horizontal relationships, filling your day up with anything other than the vertical one. Test, test me in this. That's what one scripture says. Test the Lord in this. He doesn't, he's not a God who likes to be tested, but here's one thing I think he doesn't mind. Hey, spend some time with me tomorrow morning and see how the things go. I don't really know how to read my word. I, okay. You know how to read? Read a little bit. Pray some. Start taking thoughts captive. You know, God, I don't even know how to do this. You think he's upset? Like, oh my goodness, Jonathan doesn't know how to have a quiet time. Well, duh, you don't know how to have a devotional time with him. You've never really done it. He has no expectation of that. He just wants to know, are you all in? Will you spend some time with me tomorrow? God, I don't know where to start. Now, start in a gospel. Don't start in Leviticus unless you're just feeling bold. That's a rough place, Numbers. Maybe start in the New Testament for now. God will show you. Read a couple things. Spend some time in prayer. All I got is five minutes tomorrow. Well, I know that's not true, but if that's how you believe it, give him those five. Give him those five. Who do you call on when you're in need of healing for a broken heart? This isn't just some gimmick. This is, this is not a flippant answer to your major life problems. God is the only one who can heal your heart. It's true. You want a pure heart? He can give it. Here's the second way. Live with reverence to God. Now, you don't really get here without first calling on him. You don't really get here until you're already beginning to see God for who he is and see his love for what it is in you, such that he now comes to 17, the second half of verse 17, where he says, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, I changed that wording just a little bit because that sounded strange to, to us, typically. We don't use the word fear in the same way that Scripture often uses fear. So I changed it to reverence. This word fear here is the word phobos. It's where we get words like phobia. Uh, it, is, it could be used in the sense of terror or fear, but that's not the way it's often used biblically. Here it's the idea of awe. But the kind of awe that's like knee-shaking kind of awe. The kind of awe of like the groom as the bride's coming down the aisle kind of awe. Like I feel like I'm going to explode kind of reverence. But way better than that. That's what he's saying. Conduct yourselves with such reverence before God. Why? Well, he gives us the why. And I just want to pass this on as it's written. Look at it again in verses 18 through 21. Look what he has to say. He says, ransomed. Ransomed. You've been redeemed. The word ransom here is to liberate with payment, to deliver by payment that God paid something you couldn't pay. And he delivered you from what? He ransomed you for what? 
He ransomed you from these futile ways, it says in 18, that we were doing empty stuff, vain stuff, uh, useless, non-purposeful kind of stuff. And guess what? We inherited it, it says, from your forefathers. Now, he's, he's speaking to a lot of Jewish congregation, but this is just a true statement. That so much of the goofy stuff we do day in and day out is just futile stuff we got from our parents who got that from their parents. Unless it's, unless it's the, the faith itself, a lot of the other stuff is, is foolishness. A lot of the other stuff that they thought made them great. He's talking to a, a group of people who were, spent time with Pharisees and Sadducees and maybe their parents and their parents and their parents looked up to them got to follow all these rules and this set of uh, uh, you know structure and he's reminding them all of that stuff as Paul said is trash and Paul in fact says it's dung compared to the saving knowledge of Jesus what did he ransom us from this empty life where we thought and maybe this is how you grew up maybe this is how you're still struggling to think now that people have told you again and again what you got to do in this life you need the white picket fence. You need the family. The, and you need two kids, no more than that, because it's crazy after two. You need the perfect career. Your whole life is meant for you to find your career. You, know? you, better, make, you better make the best of it. You only get this one shot. And the more you make, nobody, you know, I've heard it, joke, I've heard it jokingly said, you know, no, one, no one ever frowns on a jet ski. And that's kind of true. You know? I probably need the jet ski and boat and all the cool stuff. I need all the gadgets. If I get all the gadgets and I get the perfect house and I got the perfect relationship and look at how good my kids are and I send them to private school and everything's right in my life. And it's useless. It's futile. It's just futile stuff. He ransomed up from that. And he's ransomed us from that. How? With the lamb without blemish. And that might not jump off the page, but, it, but it, as you look back through scripture, it might. That what he's speaking to here is the Passover lamb. He's looking back at the Exodus. He's looking back at Moses and all of them and saying, Hey, just like I did to them, I rescued them from the most outrageous of all the plagues where I took the firstborn sons of every family. How horrible was this as the angel of death passed through? And he said, Put the lamb without blemish. Put the blood of that lamb on the door and I'll just pass right over that. And guess what they did? They celebrated that Passover festival for years to come. To this very day, they still do so. And Jesus is that. That's what Peter's saying. And more than that, this is how much God loved them. Look at verses 20 and 21. That from the foundation of the earth, he's planning that. Now, now this one really baffles me. This one is a, is a mind shaker. That before God even created, even before God said, let there be light, he already had a redemption in mind. Is that not amazing? That God in his foreknowledge, in his omniscience, he knew what was to come. He knew about you and I sitting in this room right now. He knew of the mess we'd make in our life. He also knew the, the glorious things he would do in us and through us. He knew all of that before he even said, let there be light. That means this God, his kind of love, plans ahead to suffer for us. I just don't have that kind of love, my friend. I love you so much <laughs> that I, don't, I, I already know I will suffer and die for you, and I'm going to do it anyway. Boy, that's, that's the kind of redemption story I could get behind. 
foreknown before the foundation, before he even conceived that he was at work in it. So how do we conduct ourselves with reverence? When we get immersed in that. This, this is going to start sounding somewhat redundant, and it's supposed to. How in the world am I going to have pureness of heart when I come into his throne room as his kid? Say, God, Father, I want a heart like yours. How in the world do I conduct myself in this life? How do I live with a sense of reverence to God? Well, I've got to, I have to have a sense of reverence to God. <laughs> I can't possibly live it out until I start to understand it. Here's who I was. Here's who I am now. Here's what matters and here's what doesn't. What matters is look what God has done. He has ransomed me. And before the foundations of the earth, he was ready to save you and I. That changes the way I live. That means God, God has a perspective of me that I don't always have of myself. He loves me even when I didn't love him. Our conduct is not from some inner strength, some self-empowerment. It's a right response to the truth of God's love. When I know that he loves me, when I know it, know it, then my reverent conduct is simply a natural response to his glorious redemption. I can't help but say, he is great. I can't help but live that out. I can't help when conversations arise and people go, you're strange. Why do you constantly, why are you hopeful? Why are you joyful? Why do you praise him? Why wouldn't I praise him? Can you see this? And that's our response. This is why John writes in 1 John 4, we love because God first loved us. Our power and love comes from him. His love poured out through us. Our reverence to God is what guides us drawing nearer to him as our greatest teacher. The psalmist writes in Psalm 111, the fear that is the reverence of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. When I come in reverence, that's the beginning point of a wise way of life, wise understanding, wise living. This used to be true in colleges throughout the world. Did you know that one of the primary degrees you would get some hundreds of years ago was a degree in, the in theology? It used to, in fact, I've read this in several places in academia, that theology was once the queen of the sciences. Now it's like some kind of foolishness, some kind of mythology to people. Somehow over time we've let that fall off. But theology, my friends, is still the queen of the sciences. A reverence to God is the beginning of wisdom. You want to understand your life? Draw near. Get to know him. Our response to this great love is worship with reverence and awe. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Here's what Peter's arguing for. A very simple Logical argument. Have you ever, my friends, have you ever put something in your mouth that was so delicious that you couldn't help but go, mmm. No one had to make you. Jonathan, you better say yummy when you put that in your mouth. No, you didn't. no one had to tell you. Just this guttural response to this wonder is, mmm. Or if it's awful, ugh. You know? No one had to make you do that. You responded naturally. You ever had just, you looked at something so beautiful, some incredible sunset, some mountain range, something you'd never observed, some feat of strength or amazement, and you just went, wow. Wow. No one has to make you respond that way. 
And what makes you have these guttural responses? I wonder, when you lay your eyes upon you know, something beautiful, your heart just melts within. Peter is saying, when you really observe the love of Jesus, you can't help but go, wow. You can't have help but live a life that says, He loves me. I can't believe that he loves me. I can't believe that he would save me. Makes me think of a song we used to sing. These songs keep coming to mind over the last few weeks. When I think about the Lord. Y'all remember this song? When I think about the Lord. How he saved me. How he raised me. Is this ringing a bell for anybody? Maybe. And it ends with. Hallelujah. Thank you Jesus. Lord you're worthy. Of all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. We used to sing that. That song came to mind. You know, it's a sad, but the new songs we're singing, they don't come to mind. I, that's just me. I'm getting, this is this thing that happens. I'm starting to see it now. Oh, it happens. When I think about the Lord. When, when you think about the Lord, does it? draw you to reverence. It does me. When you, when you taste and see that the Lord is good, you can't help but go, yum. Have you moved on from the gospel, my friend? Has that been something that's happened in your life as if Jesus' saving love was some kind of one and done in your life? I did that once and I'll have to come back to it. <laughs> that's not so. If we desire a pure heart, a pure heart that worships God with reverence, we must never, ever get over this salvation story. It never gets old. It never dulls. It only gets more fantastic the more you study it. The more you really get captivated by it, you go, I cannot believe the depths that he would go for me. And here's the third way. And this one may seem really challenging to you, but having already called on him as father and filling, filling yourself up with reverence to God, saying, wow, to this amazing love and mercy, now love one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly. This is why in verse 22 he begins by saying, having your hearts purified. God is already doing a work in you. Now what can you do? You can have a sincere Brotherly love. Now that word sincere may not have jumped out to you. I read it and went, there's my problem. There it is right there for me. You will see from me brotherly love all the time. I'll do it in this place. I'll do it in small groups. But in my heart, I'm having this battle with self. Is that sincere? Like, you know you should be nice. And so you're being nice. Do you really love this person? Are you really loving them out of a heart? That's loving God. This word brotherly love is exactly the word Philadelphia. <laughs> right here in the text, that's the city of brotherly love. This is the love of brothers, brotherly love. In the New Testament, it's this idea of Christians which cherish the one another's here. Is, he's speaking to believers in the house of God. He's speaking to scattered Christians. You know what the world should observe in you? A sincere love. It's really confusing, just so you know, and, and you probably are aware of this. It's very confusing to the outside world when church people are mean to each other. They don't understand that. I thought y'all were in that club together. Why y'all tearing each other down? That's weird. And it is weird. 
We should be sincerely loving one another earnestly. This should be actually what draws people in. They will know you by your love. It'll be the thing that makes people want to come in the door, not never, never, you know, grace the building. Instead of being the thing that drives them away, it should be the thing that drives them in. Because what? Because the love of God is so pouring in us and through us that we can't help but love each other. Love one another earnestly. This is the word agapao from agape. Obviously, this unconditional kind of love. Peter says, if you missed it, let me give you both Greek words for love. Phileo, agape. Hey, you know, you pick your poison, my friend. If you, if you can't get your head around this love, let me give you a both of the concepts right away. Sincerity, earnestly. The word earnest here is fervently, intensely. Why? Because we've been born again, verse 23 says. Born again, having our minds changed into something imperishable, not perishable. How do we do this? Well, it's much of the same. Love one another as Christ has first loved you. We love because God first loved us. Love has now poured out from him to us, in us, through us. John 13 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. How? Just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, people will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. Our love for one another. In fact, my friends, this is a challenging thing, but it's one that you should take home today. Our love for one another is evidence that we really know God and understand Him. Apart from this love, we don't really know this loving God. In 1 John chapter 4, the, the apostle writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. I'm convinced of this. That love is the fruit of love. Now that sounds circular, but follow me for a second. A loved person who rightly understands the love that they've received will be loving to others. This is, you can look at children and see this clearly. Children naturally do this. A loved, a healthy, loving home, a loved child will be a loving person. Now, that's not that, that's not that they're going to be perfect. They'll make mistakes. They'll do things. And, and, and don't sit here and incriminate yourself. That's not the point of the visual I'm trying to give you right now. Is, well, my kid acts crazy sometimes. And they do rude things and they're mean to me sometimes. Maybe I don't have a loving home. It's not the point. There's a a flip side to this that I read about this week. What happens in the heart of an unloved child? Seven symptoms they've talked about of a kid who's being raised in an unloving home. They develop fears and phobias. Afraid of... The dark is pretty normal, but certain objects, certain situations, things that are unusual... They become very impulsive. They can't contain their rage. They can't contain their tears, their laughter, their emotions are completely impulsive. They're unstable. They want one thing today and another thing the next. They become anxious, like not being able to stand still, not being able to ask questions, answer questions. It's hard for them to concentrate or pay attention. They become invisible, or they try to. They hide, sneak off. They don't exist An unloved child doesn't have well-developed social skills. They're uncomfortable around others. Those were seven symptoms. I didn't write those. 
like, oh, my kid has a couple of those. Well, you know, there's, there's, there's other things going on, but maybe that's something for you to consider for yourself. Maybe you know in your heart, I didn't grow up in a house that was very loving. And I did struggle with some of these things. This isn't meant to be some sort of parenting piece. Rather, a piece to, to help you see something. That the, the love, the fruit of love, is love. <laughs> that love begets love begets love. You see what I'm saying? That when we receive love from God, and here's the challenging thing, my friend. You are loved by God. Period. I don't, have to, I don't have to help you determine that. It is a fact. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. He has done it. It is complete. Grace, mercy, salvation, this whole picture of God's love has already been given to you. The question for you then is, do I believe it? Do I really think I'm loved? And if that's true, as I begin to unpack this amazing gift... God's love becomes clear, this massive picture to me, what will I do with it? Will the love of God actually change me? Such that the world would know that I love God and that He loves me by the way in which I love others. That it's not something I've just internalized. No, it's beginning to pour out. Jesus said this very thing, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What has filled up your heart? Is it love? What has so filled you? Is it reverence all of the ransom of the salvation of the love of Christ? Has that so abundantly filled your heart that that's what pours out? Well, how does that happen when you draw near to him? Have you rightly recognized the love of God in your life? Have you received it for yourself? It's not enough to hear it. It's not enough to think, well, that might be true. Have you received it? Has it impacted and informed your life so that now it pours out? God blesses the pure in heart. Perhaps today I wonder if you're feeling kind of stuck in this area. That the idea that God would love you, that he would rescue you, that God would create in you a clean heart just seems so foreign. We have, we have an opportunity for you. We've been talking about this for several weeks. If you're feeling intensely stuck in this spot, on Thursday nights we have Celebrate Recovery at our Wilson campus. And it's meant to help you with any of life's hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Perhaps there's a hang-up you have right here that you can't believe that you could possibly be cleansed. You could possibly be made clean. You're wrestling with that even right now, that God would clean you. But he can, creating you a clean heart. And he wants to do it, and he loves you more than you know. We've already covered six of these recovery steps, if you will, through the word recovery. And you can post this on the screen. Number The, the, the R is realize I'm not God. Come to him humbly, poor in spirit. Earnestly believe that God exists. Consciously choose to commit. Openly examine and confess my faults voluntarily submit to make changes by God's power. And then this week, now I'm evaluating all my relationships. This relationship step where I've determined the thing I want more than anything is this vertical move that I'm going to start my day that way and I'm never going to hang up the phone. I'm going to dial Christ. I'm going to dial the Lord as I step foot on the ground and I'm going to keep it on. And I want to be his. And I want his love to pour on me. I want to rightly understand what it is I'm supposed to revere. And as I have more awe in him, that that love would pour out to others. So that my vertical relationship affects all of my horizontal ones. Evaluate all my relationships. Church, will you call upon the Lord as his child? 
Will you live with reverence to him and love one another earnestly by his power? Let's pray now together, church. Heavenly Father, we, we ask today simply this, that you would overwhelm us with your love. That we would not be able to move past it. I know for myself, Lord, I know this well. I've been a, a believer. I've been a follower of you for a long time. Most of my life, I came to Christ for my part when I was about six years old. That's a long time ago for me. And God, I must admit something I know is super sad in my life. That is, that that would be something I did back there that has stopped informing me right now. God, would you do something in us, in me, in your people, in this congregation, in your church? Would you put salvation at the tip of our mind, at the very front of it? That it's so there, that it's so impressed on us, that it's on the tip of our tongue. That we would never get tired of the salvation story. As Peter puts it here again to the scattered believers, that they would see, don't forget, church, don't forget. You've been ransomed by the Lamb without blemish. Don't forget what He's done for you. Don't get over it. You can't get over it. His love is poured out once and again and again and today. All anew, all fresh today. God loves you. I'm thankful for that, Lord. I'm thankful for your love for us. Help us to not be a kind, the kind of Christians who would get over that, but that it would inform us. I'm praying for your people this week as they begin their work week again tomorrow that this would be so at the forefront of their mind. Help us, some of us in this room, and I struggle at times myself to have a, a, a consistent, constant relationship with you. I want that pure heart, but I don't often come to the one who is pure for it. God, help me right there. Convict me in that place. God, I pray there's a knocking on the, on the door of my heart tomorrow as I wake up. Hey, son, hey, daughter, let's, let's talk. Start your day with me. God, do that in us. We love you. Impress your love on us in such a way that we would love one another. I pray that this church would truly be known that way. I know that people in here, including myself, we have brokenness. We have problems. We make mistakes. Sometimes we hurt one another, Lord. I pray that your love would so pour out in us and through us that we'd be able to show grace and mercy to one another. That if there's, if there's some sort of infighting going on in this room right, right now, that there's people that are at odds with each other, that you would well up love within them, that they would solve that today. Maybe they'd go out to lunch as they leave this place and say, hey, we need to reconcile here. You are my brother, you are my sister, and we can't live this way. God has done way too much for us to live in this way. And that the world around us, that our community would know, if they know almost anything about Eastgate Church, and I know we're, we're small and we're growing, but I pray the one thing they would know above all else is those people really love you and they really love one another. God, do that in us. You can do that in us. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.